Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. And one thing with that, Matt, one of the things that they're doing with that, though, is a lot of training these days and a lot of courses these days are touching on the dark web from you know, from uh, colleges and cyber threats and everything, just so that they have, you have an understanding of what you're doing before you get on there. Right. And so all this news training and all these college courses and everything out there is talking about this. still. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online researchers. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, and by the way, I keep the lights on just in case before I get on the dark web. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we're discussing investigating financial fraud on the dark web, and we're joined by Needlestack contributor Adam Hinkey. So you all may already know Adam from some past episodes. Um, Adam's a former cyber threat intelligence analyst in the financial sector. Uh, now, he currently serves as Authenticate's OSINT training specialist. Uh, so welcome back to the show, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Recall, we, we talked a little bit earlier about this is all about the dark web uh, for a few episodes. And uh, so we wanted to leverage your, your experiences and expertise uh, in the financial sector. Um, so when we say... Um, investigating financial fraud on the dark web. Can you kind of expand upon that? What kind of fraud are we talking about when we think of financial fraud in the dark net? So when we look at the dark web as, you know, as analysts, what we're really looking at from a financial institution perspective is stolen credit cards and stolen credentials, right? These are the main attacks that are used against um, customers of banks and, and whatnot to get access to the accounts and then steal money. Um, again, this is these have been going on for years, whether it's through phishing or smishing, as they call it, by sending an SMS text message to somebody. Um, you know, it's really low sophistication. So it's just something that they do all the time. And if it's not broke, why mess with it, right? Um, it, one of the things that we've noted, I've noticed when I'm doing my research out there is um, some of the banks, you know, you, you can buy these the stolen credit cards for a specific amount of fund, you know, money, but each bank has its different fundings, right? Um, so the, the smaller the bank, the cheaper it's going to be, the larger the bank, the more expensive it's going to be. And that's based upon, again, how big these accounts may be at these at these banks, right? A small bank may only have a credit limit of like 500 bucks, mm. whereas a big bank is going to have a credit limit of maybe $10,000. So you're able to, um, to take, take more money from that credit card. But overall, one of the things you may notice, one of the things is while it's cheap, they don't guarantee access to the funds, right? They'll say, hey, here's this batch of credit cards. So 100 bat, on a batch of 100 credit cards for 100 to $200. No guarantee that there's any money on these cards, you know, 
but here they are. So it's kind of a, a best guess, I guess. They sell you a bunch of numbers, and then you know, on the dark web, and then you know, the criminals can can try them. It's sort of a, a best shot, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And the thing I was reading before the episode uh, was about fraud and the cost of fraud. You know, it's something like five trillion dollars in fraud in general um, throughout the world, and of course, billions and billions of that in the United States every year. And the interesting thing I was reading uh, from LexisNexis actually was that. Uh, the cost of fraud now is, is staggeringly high. So for every $1 in fraud that takes place, it costs a financial firm $4 uh, to help remediate that or investigate that and everything else that they do. And it's pretty interesting because banks are ultimately responsible for replacing the stolen funds and investigating the, the fraud, right? Correct. Uh, you have fraud investigators whose job is to look at transactions and see if they're fraudulent, right? Um and there's some leeway on how much money they're going to replace uh, based upon, again, when you reported the fraud happening. If you reported it immediately from most ATM debit cards, you're going to get your money back. If you don't report it immediately, you may be responsible for the transactions prior to. And even still, you've got to prove that you didn't authorize these transactions. And that's the end of be all of it. Um, you know, one of the things is it's a lot harder to dispute ATM or debit card charges than it is a credit card, right? With credit cards, if you you know, if you report your credit card stolen or if it's used and you say that wasn't me, they're going to give you the money back. I've had it happen to me several times with my own personal cards, which is why I use a credit card for most of my transactions now, versus using my ATM or debit card that I have with another bank. Adam, you mentioned um, fraud analysts. Um, I'm curious. Though, uh, if we can go a little deeper on that, since our audience, um, a lot of investigators uh, and doing online research, is it always kind of a fraud analyst or, or what, who's typically conducting these types of investigations and having to get to the dark web when you're dealing with financial crimes? And like, how, how does that work organizationally for, for these financial services companies? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's really based upon how the organization is structured, right? You may have some fraud analysts who've had experience going on the dark web and pulling credit cards and, and usernames and passwords down and, and all that. Sometimes they lay it off on the SOC or the cyber threat intelligence team if they've built one. I mean, they have a SOC, but if they don't have a threat intelligence team, they may not be able to do that. So it falls on the SOC to do it, right? Um, I know my team, when I was in my previous org, that was my job, you know, it really wasn't a mandate. It was one of those things that we started to do and look at um, as a way to leverage information and, and it's information that's out there for us to then stop fraud. And that's the biggest thing a bank wants to do is stop fraud. Um, if you can stop fraud, you can pretty much save, you know, even as Matt said, millions of dollars for any any type of bank. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to do at the end of the day. Oh, that's a, so. Just to reiterate, you were um, you were in the SOC, well, and as a cyber threat intelligence analyst. Um, but that remit going beyond cybersecurity, um, it was important enough to the bank uh, and to, to bring that fraud type of element into your role. Correct. It was. Yeah. I, I wasn't part of the SOC. We were we were actually above the SOC and outside of the mm. SOC in cyber risk. Um, but one of the things we were mandated or we were asked to do, not really mandated to do was go on the dark web and see what you can find. And that's just because we had experience on the dark web. There weren't a lot of people in the org who had experience surfing the Mm -hmm. dark web um, or had the knowledge that you need to go do research on the dark web. That's really interesting. And uh, it's kind of cool that 
you know, you were filling in a need there, even though when most people think of a cyber threat intelligence analyst or a SOC or a risk organization, you may be thinking of fraud analyst or fraud investigation, right? So it's pretty cool that you're able to, to do that. Um, was a lot of that work proactive or reactive? I guess, what was the, the blend there of proactive versus reactive in those things? Um, it was a bit of both. We would get alerts saying, hey, we had this massive credit card dump and your cards may be in it based upon um, you know, the, the batch identification number that each bank has, the first four to six digits of a, of a credit card or a debit card. Um, or we would just be out looking around and, oh, the new dump, you know, oh, this came out. We'll see if we can look at this. Um, but so it was a little bit of 50-50 there, not just, you know, doing it for, for, for whatever reasons, right? So so you're out there and you're taking a look and, and you come across these stolen credit cards. And you had mentioned um, there's potential to, to get access to them to see if they're numbers and if they're related to your institution. You might have to buy those, right? Well, that would be the option. You'd have to buy them to get access to the numbers. I mean, what... I know you're not a lawyer, but are, in your experience, are, are banks prepared to do that? Is it is it is it legal? Is it advantageous? What what are your thoughts? I'm trying to picture that scenario. It's kind of a double edged sword, and one of those things where yes, I could go onto a dark web platform and and buy credit cards for the, my organization for around fifty dollars for a batch of a hundred. But then the legal side comes in, and they 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 start to think, well, where's this money going, right? Is the money that I'm sending to these malicious actors going to terrorism or going to other bad things, right? And so it's very, it's a very touchy subject because a lot of banks won't pay for it, um, but some might, right? It just comes down to what they can get away legally and what they're allowed to do legally, right? That, that's the hard part. I would love to say that all banks are out there buying every single credit match of credit cards that they can find from there that that has the, their their you know their bin numbers on it. They're, or resolves to their bank, but they're not, they're probably not right. Yeah. It's the legal aspect that comes into play. I didn't think about that, right. That on one hand, you know, what type of criminal it is and could you be funding something very ominous? Like you said, terrorism as an example, while you're, you know, when you're trying to shut off the credit card, that that's interesting. Did and, not think of that point. And it kind of reminds me too of the ransomware argument where some people there are two sides to that. Some people say, Oh, we should just pay off the ransom, get our data back. And there's the other side that uh, thinks that if you are paying off the ransom, then you're encouraging the behavior or putting the money towards someone who is uh, malintent or something like that. So uh, that's pretty interesting, too. Adam, I want to ask, um, how do you typically find this information? When you think about the dark web, lots of stuff out there, lots of forums and message boards uh, and other types of sites that are there. How do analysts typically find information related to financial crime on the dark web? So in all honesty, it's actually very easy. There are some what we call surface web uh, or open, you know, basic internet searches you could do to find stuff on the dark web. There, there are places on the surface web that have dark web links on them that you can then go on the dark web and start looking at and start finding these things. Now, they're very generic, um, but there's also other stuff like you know, there's Discord and there's, there's Reddit. There's sub channels of that stuff that talks about the dark web and where to go. So you can find this stuff on the open web. Just be aware you need to have specific software again to get onto the dark web and be aware of what you're looking at on the dark web, right? But once you've started to do the research and started to look into those Wikipedia's or those you know those um, op- you know surface websites that that have dark web information, you can, as an analyst, start building up how you're going to do it and what you're going to do. 
Right. And have there been over the years, you mentioned like Discord and Reddit and some other things, have there been over the years some evolution or changes into techniques that are used to find information on the dark web? Well, with the dark web being, with, with, with the Onion Router being the way it is, they just upgraded to version three. So a lot of things have changed, right? Um, there's also concerns with some of the marketplaces being, you know, a lot. we've seen a lot of the news while marketplaces being taken down. And so they're actually shutting them down. Um, a couple of them have gone by the wayside. There's still a few out there that you have to log, create an account for to log in, which we don't. That's on you, you know, on the investigator if they want to do that and what their policies and procedures mm-hmm. are at their organization. Um, it's really just once you get on there and if you get a good search engine on the dark web, and there are several, you are then able to just type in a search query and find what you need to find. A lot of the stuff's based on Google search queries. And so you just got to plug away at it basically and, and use your analyst techniques to get in there and find what you're looking for. Hey, Adam, uh, sorry, just for our listeners, you mentioned without going deep, deep into what does that mean? Like dark web version three, like, so they've updated some of the routing and some of the code behind on the back end of ver, of the of the onion router, um, and they've made it really hard to remember the web addresses, right? Because a normal web address is www.google.com. Right? We use that as an example. An onion web address is going to be it's like sixteen to forty characters long, and it's all randomized, ending in dot onion. Like it's going to be so weird to look at, you won't remember how to get there. Got it. Okay. So it's, it's and, and, that's... and for me, like I have a, a notepad of some old sites that I just copy and paste sometimes because I just can't remember them. Right? Like, they're mm-hmm. so long and so convoluted. So it'll be even more complicated than it is today <laughs> then to, to try to remember those. Yeah, exactly. Adam. So could we talk a little bit about the, um, you know, where do you find these types of people and, and, and how do you go about, hiring uh, to, to deal with uh, with the types of people that can can do this types of investigation around financial fraud because it sounds like you need a lot of historic knowledge right so. you kind of do need some historic knowledge but really there's so much training out there and so many well, you know YouTube videos on the dark web from the historical days you could go and look at them um, before you know before being at my previous org, I'd had a little bit of background in looking at the dark web and using Tor to do some, some, some behind the scenes things for whatever purposes. Nothing's really changed. It's just, if you're a good enough researcher, you're going to be able to find out how to get there. Right. Um, it does help to have some historic knowledge of how Tor started and what it does and how it works. Um, and just remember to be careful when you're doing dark web research, right? Cause you never know what you're going to stumble into, whether it's, a an FBI investigation that's looking at a form and you post something or view something there, or you get the attention of the bad guys and they come looking for you. Right. So again, that historical knowledge is needed knowing that you need to be careful on the dark web. I think a lot of people think it's just, Oh, I can go on the dark web and I can do anything. Right. And you, you run into those problems. Right. Yeah, that's where that experience really can can be beneficial, you know, knowing knowing what to do, what not to do, and having a sense for that type of stuff. And one thing with that, Matt, one of the things that they're doing with that, though, is a lot of training these days and a lot of courses these days are touching on the dark web from, you know, from uh, colleges and cyber threats and everything, just so that they have, you have an understanding of what you're doing before you 
get on there, right? And so all this news training and all these college courses and everything out there is talking about this still. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, as we wrap up here, any closing thoughts that you have on what people need to keep in mind for using the dark web, especially as it pertains to financial fraud investigations? I would say the one thing is no matter how big your team is, if it's one person, if it's huge team, set up guidelines, policies, and directives on how you're going to access the dark web, what you're going to look for, document what you're doing in case there's a, a legal problem, in case you know, law enforcement comes knocking at your door going, hey, who are you? Um, you know, that's the big key thing, making sure that and then I would just make sure that the security team is aware that you are doing dark web research um, and then make sure that the, the people doing it have training involved to limit the attribution to that organization. Um, again, like I mentioned, you could be out there plugging away on the dark web. And if you're using your organization's network and, and all that big no, no, they'll figure it out and either they'll shut you down to not let you have access or you're going to end up highlighting yourself and you know no news is great to say for these guys to go and say hey look this big bank is looking into us hmm. let's do something to them right or let's get you know let's try something else yeah you could then unfortunately become the victim instead yeah, of the, the investigator exactly. Well, Adam, thanks so much for being here this week. We enjoyed the conversation about financial fraud and the dark web. And thanks to everyone at home for tuning in this week. If you liked what you heard, as always, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, watch episodes on YouTube, and view transcripts and other information on our website. And be sure to follow us at Needlestack underscore pod on Twitter. As always, we'll be back next week with more information on the dark web as we sit down with the OSINT Curious Project's Michael James. Looking forward to that. To register, you can visit Authenticate. That's authentic with the number eight.com slash needlestack. See you then. Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.